For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. In order to thrive in today's competitive business market, you need to constantly adapt to change. In other words, reinvent yourself and your company. Welcome to Business Reinvention with host Nancy Lynn. This hour will have you listening to and thinking like the successful business leaders of today. Now, here is your host, Nancy Lynn. Welcome to Business Reinvention Show. This is Nancy Lin. We bring you thought-provoking ideas from a wide range of industries so that you can connect the dots and stay innovative and competitive. Well, you probably know by now that the traditional retail business is facing unprecedented challenges. And if you have been following online discussions, you probably have seen lots of comments predicting the death of physical stores. Um, and many people attributed the demise of the traditional retailers to the rise of Internet, mobile phones, and other disrupted technologies. But are new technologies the main reasons for a challenging retail environment? Well, today I want us to go beyond the obvious and get a deeper understanding of the undercurrent that has eroded the base of the book, excuse me, brick and mortar retail business. Um, cause I think too many companies roll out new strategies without an understanding of the real problem, which can probably undermine the success of any transformation. So I think it's important that we take another look at the retail industry. And um, we are told to believe that anything is possible when it comes to creation of something completely new, a new company, a new industry, a new technology. So shouldn't we be open-minded and also explore the possibility of reinventing a traditional industry? Well, that is going to be the focus of today's show. Um, in addition to reviewing problems in the industry, we'll also explore new strategies for retailers to revive their business. Um, and we'll look beyond retail industry to understand the implications for other sectors as well. And joining us for the discussion is Doc Stevens, one of the world's foremost retail industry futurists. He's also the founder of Retail Profit and the author of the new and groundbreaking book, um, The New Retail Revival, Reimagining Business for the New Age of Consumerism. Hi, Doc. It's Hi. wonderful to have you here. And thanks, Nancy. It's good to be here. And first of all, congratulations on your new book. Um, it offers um, so many refreshing insights about the retail industry. I really enjoy reading it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so like I said, many people have pronounced um, the physical source dead. So are retail stores online really invincible? <laughs> um well, I wouldn't say that anything is invincible, and I think we've certainly, <laughs> if we've learned anything over the last 30 years, we've learned that. I mean, and, and I would call as Exhibit A uh, to, to that being Walmart. Uh, you know, there was a time not so long ago when people were saying exactly the same thing about Walmart, that they were unstoppable and invincible and uh you know, nobody, in fact, I, I wrote an article only about four years ago uh, that predicted... Um, 
the death of Walmart essentially as we have known Walmart and, and really mm-hmm. that extended to the big box in general. And it was surprising to me uh, how many people even, you know, only four years ago were pushing back on that and saying that's ridiculous. You know, the, the, the big box as we know it is going to continue into the foreseeable future and, it, you know, these, these retailers are too big to stop and that sort of thing. So, um, no, nothing is invincible, that's for sure. Hmm. Well, then let's look at the physical store, the traditional retailers um, on the other side, um, because many people, like I said, believe that emerging technologies are the reasons why they are really struggling right now. Um, are there other key factors that we have overlooked? Yeah, I think there's I think there's multiple factors, frankly. Um, I mean, there's a lot of talk right now about technology, and I'm sure that um, you know a lot of your listeners probably heard the comments. Uh, about a month ago or so that Mark Andreessen made. Mark Andreessen, of course, is the guy who started uh, Netscape. So, I mean, he knows what he's talking about, you know, when he talks about technology and the Internet. And he's um, a significant venture capitalist now, an investor in a lot of online properties. But he made the statement that retail is dead and that software is, is essentially eating retail. And if you're a retailer, you may as well turn the lights out you know, lock the door because it's over. Uh, and his prediction was we're going to be very soon buying everything that we buy uh, online. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a lot of hyperbole right now around technology. I don't foresee technology as being the, the only cause of the disruption right now. I think that there are also some pretty deep demographic uh, causes that, that retailers are coming to grips with. I think there's uh, some very deep economic uh, problems, not just you know recessionary issues, but I think you know some some significant problems in the economy uh, that aren't going to go away, uh, that are are kind of uh, a part of this amalgam of the new reality as we go forward with consumers. So, uh, no, I, I don't think it's technology alone. Although I will say, of course, that uh, that technology is certainly allowing people to uh, to hack retail. You know, retail <laughs> is getting hacked. And, uh, and and quite you know quite uh, adeptly uh, by some people. So um, th- this is new too. Hmm, I love that expression. Um, yeah, it's definitely been hacked. Um, so let's talk about this new reality, um, and which I think is what makes your book so intriguing. Um, you talked about um, the fact that we are going through a complete economic, social, and emotional reset. Yeah. What do you mean by that? And um, I know we don't have a lot of time on the show, but love if you could give us maybe a couple examples for each one of them um, to show us how it's kind of changing the retail um, strategy. Sure. Well, I mean, if you go back, and, and, and I guess part of, you know, people ask me uh, from time to time, and some people almost kiddingly uh, ask me what, what a futurist actually does. And, um, you know, they have sort of this notion about futurism that it's um, – you know, making a lot of bets uh, on things that are going to happen and making a lot of predictions and projections. And in fact, a lot of it is a matter of looking at the past and and trying to calibrate really the, the trajectory of things and where things are headed. And, and in order to understand where we're going, you have to understand where we came from. So if you look at where we came from, say you go back back to the mid-60s, when oddly enough, 1962, Walmart, Kmart, Kohl's, Target, and about uh, 150 other really huge retail names that we all know of started up in 1962. 
Um, the, the reason, of course, was that the apex of the baby boom in North America and in, in most of the developed world was uh, 1957. And so by 1962, you had the front end of this uh, enormous generation, the biggest generation in history now, between 5 and 15 years old or 16 years old. So at a point in their lives, essentially, where they needed everything. They needed more cheeseburgers, more running shoes, more trips to Disney World, more, more of everything. And so you had this enormous amount of retail spawn out, out, out of nowhere. And essentially, we have been on an absolute tear from, from a consumerism standpoint for the last 50 years. I mean, you look at how did, how did a, a five-and-dime store in Arkansas go from being that little, one little store to becoming this behemoth, uh, this global behemoth, uh, that has stores that are upwards of 150,000 square feet. You know, how did Home Depot, which is a lumber yard in Atlanta, become what it is today? So um, it, it shows you the magnitude of, of that generational impact. And what made that even more significant was not that you just had a massive number of new consumers, but you also had consumers that were, generally speaking, the same. And, and I, when I say that, people say, well, what do you mean? People were different. In 1965, you know, people on your street were different than you were. And while that may be true to some extent, the fact of the matter was most people, most people uh, were from middle-class families. Uh, it was the largest middle class in history, and most people were included in it. Most people came from families with, uh, with married parents. They came from families that had children. Uh, you know, they, they lived probably in the suburbs, you know. So, I mean, most families' needs were relatively homogenous by today's standards. Um, and somebody said to me, yeah, but, you know, Doug, weren't, weren't consumers always different? I mean, people, we say that, you know, uh, there's no typical consumer now. And somebody said, but, but weren't consumers always different? And, I mean, if you look at the immigration policy alone, in North America, in Canada and the U.S., uh, there was discriminatory language against Asians and East Indians in the immigration policy of the U.S. and Canada until 1968. You know, that, that was when that, that sort of language came out. And so we have really been, uh, we've been dealing with diversity on the scale that we have it today for a relatively short period of time. So that's making things difficult. And then economically, uh, you know, if you look at the period between, say, the 1950s uh, up to about 1980, we had a robust middle class. It was a growing middle class. People's wages were growing. Um, the, the family that, that was getting by on one income was uh, doing so using 50% of their disposable income. By 2005, with two incomes in the family, people were spending 75% of their disposable income on fixed expenses. So um, the middle class began to fragment. We're hearing more and more, of course, about this now, um, that the middle class isn't necessarily disappearing, but it's fragmenting into all these different subclasses. So you have all these multiple issues. You know, you have economic issues, demographic issues, um, and then, of course, they're, they're underpinned by the technological disruption that's going on right now, which has been accelerated by mobile technology. 
Very interesting, and and it's um, kind of what you're saying about there were more the same before than there they are today, and and maybe that's why something like TV commercial worked really well before, where it's not working as well today because we have so many more um, customer segments, um, and they're more single parents, and and we have shrinking middle class, growing baby boomers, rising debt, and multiple influencers in the households, and fewer kids, and more single. Um, parents who are men and then we have millennials who have different spending patterns um, so this all kind of coming together at the same time and so how does that translate into the fact that big boxes don't work anymore is that because they are so different so they want different things so that big boxes won't work anymore um, we have like two minutes left to the break so yeah. well, kind of translate pre- that for us the big yeah. box is predicated on, on a pretty simple idea really and that was that you had to you had to generally speaking be able to predict what consumers were going to want, right? And you had to do that across a relatively narrow set of products. And then you had to buy those products in enormous quantity to put incredible leverage on your, on your vendors and drive your unit costs down as far as you possibly could. And if you could do that, you could succeed in, in developing a big box concept. That was really all you had to do. But now that we have such a fragmented population of consumers out there with different lifestyles, different needs, different preferences, different tastes, the ability to predict that product requirement and those preferences is gone. It's, it's virtually impossible now to, pre- to predict across a narrow set of products what people are going to want. And when you add into the fact that you don't have this homogenous middle class uh, where you know you have relatively stable economic conditions, employment conditions, financial conditions, it makes for havoc. And the the big box was the result of 50 years of stability, which we don't have anymore. Hmm, interesting. Well, we also wanted to find out how all these things um, have changed our purchase decision process um, when we come back from a break. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin, and I'm glad you can join me for the discussion today. Follow me on Twitter at BizReinvention or go to BizReinvention.com for more business insights. We'll be back after these messages. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lynn at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. How can we Americans realize our dreams to earn a living? How can you pursue your dream and make money as an owner or an employee? Learn how at The American Business Person, the online weekly radio talk show hosted by Rich Killian. Today's business leaders share how to succeed and what fails. If you own a new or established business or ever hope to, you must tune in. Join us every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, and noon Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Or listen on demand to our archived shows. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. 
You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. Well, before the break, Doug, you were um, explaining to us um, how we have a more diverse um, customer base now. Um, so how does that translate into, say, purchase decision process? Um, has a big impact on that as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, you've got now um, a vastly different looking consumer than, than you did only, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. And the, it's important, I think, to understand, too, that a lot of a lot of what we're experiencing now wasn't i don't think caused by the recession but it was accelerated you know it was like the the fumes were already in the room but the the recession was the match that really lit things up um and and when i say that i mean you know baby boomer spending was going to decline anyway at some point but the recession accelerated that when people started to see their retirement savings evaporating before their eyes right so there was a natural reaction on the part of baby boomers um to to uh you know rein in spending um so so some of this is is recessionary behavior that we're seeing but some of it is behavior that was going to happen anyway uh in terms of the new consumer mindset uh, and, and it's just been accelerated. But, yeah, I mean, consumers are making completely different decisions now. And, again, you know, people say, well, you know, the Internet's been around since 1994. Why is it that consumers feel so empowered now? Uh, what is it with this new level of empowerment? Um, and and I, think it's, I think it's two things. I think, first of all, the, um, the, the sheer level of user-generated media that's out there now uh, that that it's not just all being brand fed to us uh, in terms of the information that's accessible to us as consumers to make decisions, and then the other side of that too is that mobile has accelerated as well because now we're not just you know trying to capture that information at home and then take it to the shelf with us and hopefully remember, but we're actually able to make in more informed decisions at the shelf in the store, and in some cases we're you know we're comparison shopping at the shelf as well, so. Uh, you know, all of these things have had an impact for sure on the consumer's decision-making process, uh, some of which would have been uh, a fait accompli anyway, uh, you know, but the, the recession uh, just accelerated it. Mm. And I thought you gave some really good examples in your book in terms of how the social, you know, changes actually affect the decision-making patterns. Um, for example, one of the things that you mentioned was that we have more single people now than probably married people, but all our retail strategy or marketing strategy tend to focus on people who are married. And so if you assume people have two income family, their decision, their lifestyle will be very different um, than in what's really important for somebody who's single. And so that's really talking about huge mindset change for retailers. Yeah. You know, retailers, there, there's a, um, a guy named Arthur Stinchcomb who was a, a sociologist in the 60s, and he came up with this idea that uh, businesses have a tendency to look at the world through the lens of the year or the, you know, the era in which they were founded. And he said it, it's almost like it gets in their DNA and they can't get it out, you know, that regardless of all the changes going on around them, they still have a tendency to look at the world through uh, the glasses 
of the era that they were born in. And you know, for for many of the brands that we see in the landscape, there's you know, of course, there's news today about J.C. Penney. They're a good example. I mean, these are brands that came from an era when, yeah, people people were people were had married. Um, they were married. They owned their homes. They had children. Uh, they had stable jobs. Uh, you know, they're single income, and so it's it's uh, it. As crazy as it sounds, a lot of retailers are still seem to be looking at the world through that lens. So you're right. There are more singles now in in the United States than there are uh, married couples. There are more families that own dogs than families that have children. Hmm. Uh, we, we haven't we haven't adjusted to a world where men shop. You know, um, <laughs> men men are still you know they're they're kind of coming out and declaring themselves shoppers and saying yeah you know I, I enjoy shopping. Men are leading online shopping. They're leading luxury shopping. Hmm. And so wow. how does the industry respond? It creates the man aisle where we put you know the nachos and Maxim magazine uh, next to each other beside the beer, and we assume that that will keep the male shopper happy. You know. So we really just haven't um, we haven't quite gotten our arms around just how how different society really is uh, and how different it's become over the last twenty years. Hmm. So it sounds like there are so many um, social and economic changes that are kind of converging all at the same time, and it's very challenging. Um, but I'm curious, why is it? Affecting traditional retailers more um, than e-commerce, um, um, is it more challenging for traditional retailers because their cost structure is not as effective? Well, I mean, the cost structure for retail is certainly an issue. It, 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 it's a, I mean, it's a variable, of course, that online retailers don't have to worry about, and it's been, of course, part of the success of, of Amazon and other online retailers is that they don't have those overheads. But um, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, what online retail now represents is choice, and consumers are gravitating towards choice. I don't think it's necessarily, um, you know, purely a matter of format. It's that consumers, for most of history, haven't had a tremendous amount of choice. They've been forced to accept what retailers um, offer them. They've been forced to operate on the retailer's terms. You know, we're open from 10 a.m. till, you know, 9 p.m. And um, after that, we, we're, we're out of business. Um, they've been forced to put up with the, uh, you know, the, the terms and conditions that retailers, uh, you know, force upon them. So what the Internet represents is a means of fighting back, you know, for consumers. So uh, I think that has been largely responsible for a lot of the growth is that consumers now understand that they don't have to live by the retailer's terms. Um, So, you know, I mean, if if we look at it on a case-by-case basis, I think you could make the argument that there's probably as many uh, small online retailers out there that might be struggling along just as some small brick-and-mortar retailers might be struggling. But as a group online retail is definitely bringing consumers over because consumers are uh, being empowered by this new level of choice that they have. Mm. So with more purchases moving to online retail channel and um, you know offering more choices, do you think that e-commerce now um, is the new big box? And what will be the role of the traditional retailers going to be? Well, this is the thing. You know, if you look at the purpose of retail, if you go all the way back to the beginning, 
the purpose of retail, and even the word retail itself means to take a quantity of something, divide it into smaller quantities, and distribute it locally. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but, but that's essentially what it, what it means. Um, so retail at its core was designed as a means of distributing products because that was the only way a brand could get their products into the marketplace that was feasible and that was economically scalable. That isn't true anymore. And that's the thing that, that retailers everywhere need to f- try and get their heads around, is that we don't need stores to distribute products anymore. Hmm. Yeah, and, I'm, and I mean, I'm generalizing because, you know, some people in your audience are probably saying, um, you know, this guy's off his, off his rocker. I mean, you know, 92% of everything that gets sold in the world gets sold through a store. I appreciate that. But the trajectory of what's being sold online is growing at 12 to 15% a year. So in, it's conceivable that in a decade, 30% of everything we buy is going to be bought and sold on the internet. That's conceivable. So we don't need retail as a means of distribution anymore. But that doesn't mean we don't need retail. And, and I think evidence of that, it's interesting because, you know, you have um, brick-and-mortar retailers like Walmart that are struggling right now to become digital. And you have uh, retailers like Amazon and, and Google that are, are saying, you know, or brands rather like uh, Google saying we need brick-and-mortar presence in order right. to kind of actualize ourselves here. So it's not that brick-and-mortar is going to go away. It's not that the Internet is going to take over everything. It's that everything is going to be different, right? Retail as we know it is over, and we're into this new era where, as I say, stores are going to be fidgetal. You know, there are going to be physical aspects to them, but there will be a digital overlay on top of the brick-and-mortar store uh, that will allow us really to transact in in new and different ways. But we don't need stores to distribute products anymore. That era is over. Um, And as we talked about earlier, it's also not just about technology. It's not just like slapping something and digitalizing it is going to solve your problem. Um, And one of the things you argue um, in your book is that being average isn't good enough anymore to survive the retail revolution. Um, So what does it mean to have to be remarkable and what are the strategies for becoming remarkable? Well, to to – go and look at the other point for a second it, you know we could be average before it was conceivable to be average um, and you know there were a lot of average retailers I mean let's face it um, think about uh, think about last week and ask yourself how many retail experiences you had that just absolutely blew your mind you know where, where you just like you had to take to Facebook right away and tell the world about it because it was so good you know, or, or open up your refrigerator and look at the brands in there and ask yourself how many of those brands could I absolutely not do without, you know. So we're coming from a place where it was very, very possible to have an average product or an average service and do really well with it because all you really needed to do was buy a ton of advertising. You know, if you could, if you could put, in 1965, if you could put three TV commercials on TV, you could get 80% of the viewing public in prime time. So, you know, it was pretty easy if you were Procter & Gamble or you were Johnson & Johnson or, you know, 
craft or somebody like that, it was pretty easy to garner attention for what were, were generally speaking, really average products. Well, now we live in a world where in order to get 80% of the primetime viewing audience, you'd need 117 commercials on TV just to get the potential. That's not even taking into account the fact that people are you know, DVRing you, they're, they're time-shifting you, they're, there's dual-screen experiences where they're just not watching commercials now because they're too busy um, you know, checking in on Facebook and stuff. So uh, we live in a world now where it is absolutely impossible, frankly, to buy the consumer's attention. And so the only alternative, and we see this happening all around us all the time, the only alternative is to create something that is absolutely remarkable. And, and you won't have to buy anyone's attention. You know, the consumer will become your media for you. And it will be far more powerful than going and buying a Super Bowl ad. So we've come from this place where average was good enough. And it's simply not good enough anymore. And what that means in reality is that we're going to lose a tremendous number of businesses because most of them suck. You know, and I hate to put it that way, but, the, but I have to be blunt. I mean, we all know it. That's the elephant in the room. Most of the businesses that are going to go away over the next decade or two decades don't deserve to be in business and probably never really deserve to be in business in the first place. Hmm. So instead of consumers going to your story because they have to um, pick up some necessities, you have to create reasons for them to want to go to your stores. And when you do that, they will become your media is really what you're saying. That's it. Exactly. Very fascinating. So, well, it looks like it's time for us to take another break. Um, let's continue this discussion after a short break. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. And we'll be back after these messages. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email Nancy Lynn at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. Everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand. Join Rochelle McCrary for The Leader and the Muse. Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success. For strategies, stories, and much more, tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Leader and the Muse. And get ready to take your brand to the next level. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. 
Now, back to business reinvention. Well, so we talked about the new retail reality, which is that stores have to be unique and remarkable in order to really thrive in the new world. Um, so I've seen a, you know, a couple of really interesting business models. For example, I think there's a store in New York called New Star uh, or a startup store. Um, I think it features merchandise from startups and they will change products and physical design every four to six weeks. Sort of like taking the concept of Zara, the uh, fashion retailer to the next level. Um, and then there's also this restaurant that I found in the San Francisco area. It's called um, Guest Chef. Guest Chef, And um, what it does is that it hosts a new chef every two weeks. Um, so I'm curious, is this something we're going to see more of um, from retailers going forward? And is that what you mean by providing a really interesting experience in your store? Yeah, it's exactly the kind of thing that we're talking about. I mean, we we have um, we have all these precepts of what retail is all about that we have to get beyond. And I'll give you I'll give you one example. You know, the the construct in in retailing was always that you you went and you advertised and you hopefully got consumers' attention and you drove them. And we we still hear these terms. They drive me crazy in retail. We drive traffic. You know, we drive traffic to the store. <laughs> well, we're right. not driving traffic, right? We're we're hopefully garnering attention from shoppers. You know, from people. So. Um, the idea was that, that then they came to the store, and the store was the end point. Now, if you got them to the store, the marketer's job was done. But now we live in a world where, in fact, if you create a really, really remarkable store concept, the consumer's first experience with you may be the store itself. So the store actually may be the first piece of media that the consumer actually engages with or touches. And if that store experience is remarkable enough, is galvanizing enough, and leaves a a strong enough imprint on that consumer's psyche, then they will go off into the world and feel comfortable buying from you on any channel at all, whether it's mobile, whether it's a poster store in a subway in Korea, whether it's online, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, by uh, shazamming a Super Bowl uh, commercial that they hear about you, it doesn't really matter. Everything becomes a store, right? So the new construct is that the store itself is becoming media, and every, every other piece of media is becoming a store because <laughs> you can give the consumer the opportunity not just to be advertised to, but to actually buy from that media, buy from the billboard, buy from our mobile ad, buy from you know the, the ad on the radio. We have the technology to do that. So that's the first big thing is that we have to understand the store is a piece of media. Uh, and, and yes, the intention, of course, is to still sell things. I'm not saying that it's not. Um, we, we, yes, we still pay the bills by selling things. But we don't have to sell all of those things from the brick-and-mortar store anymore. There's a lot of mm. different ways that we can sell. So that's that's one of the, the big changes for sure. So a lot of people in the audience 
are probably wondering, okay, so now life sounds really complicated, no predictable purchase path, very little brand loyalty and very diverse demographics, and not to mention multiple decision makers in each household. Um, so what do you have to do to deliver remarkable results if you were, say, the CMO of a struggling retail company? Um, yeah. And what if you were the COO or the CPO, the chief people officer? Um, how do you need to think differently? Let's start with the CMO, the Chief Marketing Officer. Sure. So I think it's I think it's a matter of going back. I mean, we we start a lot of meetings, uh, you know, with with what should we do? You know, what new product? What new services? What changes to our stores? We start with this idea of what is it that we have to bring to the world, and. I think that more meetings need to be started with a different question, and that is, why do we exist? And and it's a it's a kind of question that will stop a, a group of executives, you know, like deer in the headlights, right? Because, <laughs> right. Because I think that they, what they will find is that they probably have differing opinions as to why the why the business exists in the first place. Um, you, you know, you may have heard of the book um, "Start with Why" by Simon Sinek. Um, a great book, very, very simple premise. But his premise is that, you know, most companies know what they do and they know how they do it. But very few companies actually know why they do it. And it's the why that the customer buys from you. Mm. Now, That's... so if, if you look at, if you look at, let's say, Lululemon, for example, you know, a brand that is now kind of taking the U.S. by storm and they're talking about international growth. But I mean, Lululemon started as a brand that, yeah, they sold yoga apparel, um, a lot of people would have said, well, it's sporting goods. Well, it wasn't sporting goods. It was yoga apparel. But what they really sold was this community of like-minded people that were really super into spirituality and, and internal in, you know, kind of inner well-being. That's what they sold. So it was the idea of Lululemon that was powerful. Yeah, anybody could have come along and made you know, decent quality yoga pants. Uh, but they didn't, you know. Lululemon succeeded because they sold a powerful idea. So I think that the first thing, the first step on this road to remarkable is you have to revisit in this new era, in this post-digital, post-social, post-industrial era, why does your store exist? What do you stand for, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, because like you said in the book, you know, consumers don't just buy for um, like don't they don't just buy what you do or how you do it but they buying why you're doing it and I think that's why we're seeing a lot of cost marketing and you know different types of marketing approaches um, in the market um, in the new era um, yeah exactly and that needs to be very very deep you know it needs to be very deep within the organization that's not something that you can just sort of say um, yeah you know well yeah we sell world peace that's what we're all about and, and you know, and, and you've got to, It's got to be something that really, really runs through the organization's veins. And once you decide on that thing, once you understand that that um, why at the center of the brand, then I think it's important to understand that there's really only two opportunities to to differentiate your brand substantially enough in order to succeed. And what I see is there's there's kind of this this curve, and it's not my idea. It was a, originated by a guy named Kevin Maney, uh, who wrote a book called Trade Off, 
And he said, basically, you know, you have to make a choice. You have to go in one direction or another as a brand. And the directions that he pointed out are you can either be a super high-fidelity brand or you can be a super high-convenience brand. And just to give you a sense of, you know, the directional uh, difference there, let's say the the super um, high-fidelity brand, let's say, is, um, for, for lack of a better example, we'll just say it's Apple, Okay. Um, which I think still has more fidelity than people give it credit for. Um, and then on the other end of the scale, you have a brand, uh, let's say, like um, uh, Amazon, okay? A super high convenience brand. Uh, Amazon's now talking about shipping products to you uh, same day, right? So you can't get much more convenient than that. Very, very low friction. But you have to be one or the other in order to penetrate and and reverberate in this new reality in order to stand out as being remarkable. You have to either be a brand that is all about creating um, an, an absolutely new level of engagement with consumers, of um, emotional connection, uh, delivering some sort of tangibly different service proposition uh, or a product that is just absolutely gorgeous by design. Or you have to go to the other end of the spectrum and say, we're going to remove as much friction from the process of buying what we sell as possible. We're going to reinvent the process by which we sell things, uh, make it simpler, make it easier, make it more accessible. But if you're caught in the middle, Nancy, and this is the problem that a lot of brands find themselves in, they're not super high fidelity. So the consumer's not walking out with their jaw on the floor because they just had such an incredible, you know, emotionally underpinned experience. But then again, they're not the most convenient brand either, you know, because there's somebody online or somebody around the corner that that offers a better level of convenience uh, to that consumer. So that's really where you don't want to be is in that purgatory in the middle where you're nothing. You're really nothing to anyone. Yeah, and I want to interject one point, and, and Zach, what you just said actually has huge implication for someone who is a COO of the company, right? Because, um, you know, if you're a company who wants to honor fidelity or create fidelity, then you, you want a great consumer experience, right? And so you right. probably focus a lot on consumer um, uh, customer service. And then if you're somebody who focuses on convenience, then you really need to focus on operational excellence. Yeah, exactly. And you, and you need to, as I say, you need to take all the friction out of the process, you know. I mean, a great example of, of that is the the Hointer store, which some of some of your audience may have seen online. In fact, they're they're out on uh, out on your coast, Nancy. They're they're in Seattle, um, and they they have a store. It's a denim store. Um, and if you go online and look up Hointer on on YouTube, you can you can see a video of this. But they have a denim store where you walk in, and unlike most denim stores where all the jeans are stacked. You know, in these huge stacks, and you can't find the size, you don't know the fit, you can't see the finish. They have them hung like they're on a clothesline. And you download the Hointer app, and each pair of jeans has a QR code on it. You just scan the QR code. It calls up the sizes that that's available in. You enter the size that you want. Robotic inventory pickers in the ceiling go and grab the jeans that you've requested, and they drop them down a chute into a dressing room. Where you awesome. can. Yeah, yeah, you go and you try them on. If you like them, you buy them. And so they, that's a perfect example of a brand that has, and, and it was, uh, ironically, it was started by um, a former Amazon employee. But, you know, they recognized that there, that there, something was broken. Like the way we sell jeans was broken. 
So they hacked it. They said, well, wait a minute. We, we have technology that can make this better. This isn't the only way you, you can sell denims. And so they hacked it, and they did a beautiful job. So that's a great example of somebody that said, look, we need to be more convenient. We need to, we need to take the friction out of this buying process. Okay, so we have one minute before the break, and so I wanted to kind of go back to the, you know, the last part of the question, which is, well, if you were a chief people officer, what do you need to do differently now than, say, 10 years ago? Uh, for, for people, from the people standpoint? Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, from, from 10 years ago. Okay, well, it sort of fits into this idea. Like, you, you know, you, you either need to, and, and I know this is going to sound cold, callous, and brutal, but you need to make a decision once and for all if people are, are for you. <laughs> you know, you need to make a decision that if we're going to go with people in our retail environments, then those people need to add some sort of significant tangible value for the consumer. Um, if not, then you need to make a decision on how quickly you can automate and, and take the people out of the equation. Because as long as the people are in the equation and they're not adding value, I can almost guarantee you that they're detracting value, that they're, that they're taking value out of the equation. So you need to decide, are we going to automate? And if so, will it be so great that consumers are blown away, like they might be in a Hointer store? Or if we are going to go with people, we need to go out and we need to not just hire clerks and baggers and cashiers and inventory people. We need to hire brand ambassadors who are super users, co-creators, and believers in the why behind our brand. And we need to unleash them on consumers so they can blow them away. Mm, great advice. People who are passionate about your brand. Um, excellent point. Well, looks like we have to take another break. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. Follow me on Twitter at BizReinvention or go to BizReinvention.com for more information. We'll be back after two minutes. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. In today's marketplace, your ability to open up the way you think and adapt to change allows your business to stay ahead of curve and perform at a higher level. At Change Agent SF, we can provide you with the tools and coaching to become an effective leader to grow your business. Contact us today at 415-322-9073 or email nancylin at info at changeagentsf.com for more information. Transform your leadership and business with Change Agent SF. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Business Reinvention with Nancy Lynn. 
To join in on this week's discussion, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to Business Reinvention. Well, now, let's talk about the role of technology. Um, you hear a lot about um, emerging technologies such as um, augmented reality, in-store analytics, mobile apps, and so many other technologies in the market. Um, which of the new technology has the highest adoption so far? And which one, in your view, has the potential to really make the biggest impact on the brick-and-mortar retail businesses going forward? You know, you know, it's interesting because you read articles sometimes. Well, I mean, just go to a, you go to a mobile conference and you will leave a mobile conference believing that consumers are, um, you know, constantly shopping on their phones, that they're constantly um, showrooming retailers. I mean, you know, showrooming is a great example. Every retailer right now on earth, it seems... <laughs> Best Buy, Walmart, Target, you name it, is claiming that they're failing because they're being showroomed. And, in fact, showrooming accounts for, and I mean pure showrooming here, where, you know, somebody's actually in a store buying, you know, off their mobile device while they're in the store, is a, an infinitesimally small fraction of all the retail buying that's going on out there. It is microscopic right now. So um, to, to listen to people, at, at some people at a mobile conference, you would be given the impression that consumers are, are fully conversant with uh, all the functionality that their phone can provide and you know the whole world is going mobile. So that's not the case. I think that we're, we're really, really in the early nascent stages of... Uh, you know, the consumer's adoption of these technologies. Yes, they have smartphones, but are people really using them to um, to inform their their shopping? It's just beginning now. You know, so um, which which technologies have the greatest potential? Um, I'm I'm a I'm a holdout personally for augmented reality. I don't think that we've even seen really the beginning of what augmented reality could do for us. I think we, we started to get a little bit of a, um, a little bit of a look at that when Google started playing around with glass. And, and I think we're going to get more uh, of a view of what an augmented world might look like uh, in, in a real sense from a consumer standpoint. But just the idea, like I just arrived in New Orleans. It's my first time in New Orleans, in fact. And... Um, it would be so beautiful if I could hold up my phone and look at the street outside my hotel and actually get some restaurant ratings just by looking at the restaurants. Um, I mean, from a functional standpoint, I think I think augmented reality just has so many functional implications. So um, I think we're going to see a tremendous amount more of that at, at retail, especially as as our um, uh, phones become more and more powerful and fast. Um, so that would be one. I think big data is definitely the other. Um, I know there's a lot of hyperbole right now around big data. There's a lot of companies that say they're investing in it, and yet 60% of all retail executives don't even really understand what it is. But I do believe that it is going to be significant, and I think I, I foresee a world where in not too long uh, we will be Essentially, we will be having our needs as consumers triangulated down to the point where it becomes predictive. 
where my calendar is talking to my past purchase behavior, uh, which is talking to my banking information, which is talking to my location, and all of this is happening in real time, and it's giving me predictive suggestions on what I am going to need an hour from now and giving me the ability to buy it. And, and I don't think, if, if you really dig in and understand the, the nature of big data, I don't think that that will, will sound outrageous uh, mm. to you. So. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Um, so I think it's really important to talk about retail industry because it, it takes it's, it accounts for two-thirds of U.S. GDP. Um, but I think the other thing that makes it so important is that so many consumer products companies sell through retail channel. It's such a key sales channel, right? And yeah. so we've been talking about how retailers must implement change to survive the competition. So then what does that mean for consumer products companies that are using retail as a key sales channel? What kind of change do they have to go through or consider in order to stay con- you know, competitive in that new retail channel. Well, I think they have to. They have to do one of two things. Well, one of two things or both. Um, because for CPGs now, it also means that retail isn't necessarily the only route to market. It's conceivable. I'll give you one one small example. Avian Water in France has a device now that consumers can put on their fridge. And when they need more water, they just push a button. They don't even have to go online. They just push a button um, that, that's, that, that's hooked into Wi-Fi, and it places an order with Avian, and the water is delivered directly to the consumer. So um, I foresee that as more and more of our uh, appliances in our house, as, as more of the things around us become connected, and I think last year at, at CES in, in Vegas, uh, 51% of all the products they showed were connected to the Internet. So as the Internet of Things uh, begins to become more prolific, we're going to start to see more and more brands tapping into that. So I think Tide is going to want to be the default replenishment uh, order for your washing machine. I think there's all kinds of brands that are going to want to be the default uh, replenishment in your fridge. Um, so I think brands are going to start to go direct more and more. Or they have to make a decision that they're going to contribute to the experience in a retail environment. We just saw that with Samsung stepping up and saying to Best Buy, uh, give us 460 square feet in your store and we'll create an experience. Mm, so, so it sounds like, yeah, the future is up for grab. It, it's, it's completely up for grabs. It's, it's to be made. You know, It's not going to be handed to us as, as retailers or as brands. Uh, it's it, we we have the opportunity right now to make it, and that's the exciting part. There's ne- mm. I don't think there's ever been a more exciting time to be in retail. Mm. Well, we have about two minutes um, before um, we have to wrap up, and so my last question for you is that a new buzzword in the lean startup concept is MVP or minimum viable product, meaning that instead of coming up with the perfect product, you should launch. Um, the new product when it's good enough, but not perfect yet, but just good enough in order to get to the market quickly and then get feedback. So now you are challenging traditional retailers to be remarkable. And in a fast-changing world, how can retailers balance speed to market and quality? What would your advice be for them? It's a a great question. I think think the key thing is conditioning your organization to, to starting to go first more often. I think most organizations, if the truth were known, they're conditioned to go second or third. And they've been taught that because failure has been verboten 
in most companies. Failure has been uh, has, has has been frowned upon and it's been punished. And um, it, it's interesting to me because, and, and I'm sorry, I've, I'm just to divert for one second, but we talk about innovation. You ask 99% of all companies out there if innovation is a core competency in their organization, and they will tell you it is. But if you look at their compensation plan, you'll see that they don't reward innovation. Mm. They reward compliance, complicity, and success. And innovation and success are are sometimes uh, completely diametrically opposed. Because if you're really going to innovate, you have to fail. And so I, I... I subscribe to the idea that you have to be first to market with things. You're going to fail a lot of the time, but you're going to learn from it. And when you are right and you hit it, you're going to hit it hard and you are going to succeed. So, yeah, I think uh, I think that's it. We have to get back to call it lean retail. Mm. Well, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been such a treat. Um, we hope to hear more from you in the future. Thanks, Nancy. My pleasure. Thank you. And for those in the audience, thank you for making us part of your day today. I hope you can tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific time for another great discussion. And in the meantime, please stay in touch with me on Twitter at BizReInvention or go to BizReInvention.com for more information about next week's program. Take care and have a productive week. Bye. We hope that you've enjoyed Business Reinvention with Nancy Lin. Please join us for another edition of our groundbreaking program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In the meantime, follow Nancy on Twitter at BizReinvention to keep up on the innovation trends and information about our next show. Or go to BizReinvention.com for more business insights. That's B-I-Z-Reinvention.com.